you guys have a TV that looks like this? You have one like that, huh, Derek? <laughs> now, how many of you have ever had a TV that looked like that, right? We were talking about, it's, it's funny, we were actually talking about that this morning when we were out, outside and talking about that in the past, probably most of us grew up, we had these black and white TVs, right? It had tubes in them and everything, and and the only remote control that they came with was my dad would tell one of us kids to get up and go change to one of the three channels that we got on that TV, right? But but like I say, none of you guys really have one of those TVs now. As a matter of fact, you can't even find one unless you go to probably an antique store because why would you want to have that obsolete TV when you could have something that's much newer? So let me ask you another question. How many of you guys have ever had a phone that looks like this, Right? I'm pretty sure that some of you in here are so young that you wouldn't even know how to make a phone call on a phone like that, right? But how many of you still have a phone that looks like that? Even if you have a landline, you probably don't have one like that, right? And landlines are getting less and less because that phone's obsolete. They don't even make them anymore. And so why would you have something that's obsolete when you could have something that's much newer, much superior to that? And, and the same thing is true with, with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we continue in our study of the book of Hebrews this morning, we're going to see that the author of Hebrews is, is going to talk about some things that are obsolete, how the old covenant is obsolete. And he's writing to these Jewish Christians who, are, who have this tendency, who have this desire, who are tempted to go back to that, that old way of reaching out and having a relationship with Jesus that's so inferior to the new way that we have in Jesus. And he's trying to tell them that old way is obsolete. Why would you ever want to go back to that? Now, I don't know many of us in here that are probably tempted to go back to Judaism. Maybe some of you came. I know some of you here came from that, that background. Probably not a lot of you. But you may not be really tempted to go back to, to, to your Jewish religion, but but I think all of us have a tendency sometimes to try to go back to the ways that are comfortable for us to reach out to God. Maybe that's some, some religious traditions that you grew up with. Maybe it's some rituals that you participated in. Maybe, and probably for most of us, this is the one we tend to go back to the most, it's this desire to do something on our own that we can do to, to reach out and to earn our favor with God. But as we're going to see in the passage that we look at this morning, why would we ever want to do that? Why would we ever want to go back to something that's so inferior when we have Jesus? It would be like going back and buying the TV or the telephone that I showed you this morning. None of us would ever think of doing that. So why would we ever think of, of returning to those roots? That's really what this passage is all about today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And... Um, what we're going to do is kind of look at this passage. I'm going to kind of break it down into some sections this morning. And what we find is this is kind of a transitional passage. And as a matter of fact, the first two verses here really are a transition from what came before to what's going to follow. What came before was starting back in, in Hebrews chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, the author's been talking about the appointment of Jesus as our great high priest. And he compares it to the appointment of Melchizedek as a priest that, he was a different kind of priest than the Levitical priest, and so was Jesus. Well, from this point forward, all the way through the end of chapter 10 now, the author is going to be talking about the ministry 
of this great high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, and showing why his ministry is so much superior to that of the Jewish priest. So, so let's look at these first two verses to start with. They actually kind of provide this, this transition between what comes before it and uh, what we'll see that comes after it. He writes this, Now, the point in which we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So here's what he says. He says, now, now here's the point of what I've been saying. He's pointing back to everything that he's, that he's written about up to that point. He's saying we have this great high priest, Jesus, who's a different kind of priest. And he's pointing back, and he's saying, but he's also pointing ahead, and he's going to say, not only is he superior because of the fact that God appointed him, he's a different kind of priest, but he has a different kind of ministry. And the basis of that ministry is the fact that, that he's not on, in an earthly tent or an earthly tabernacle doing that ministry. It says here he's set up in the true tent that God set up. Or we could literally translate that the true tabernacle. Same word that's used there to, to, to describe the tabernacle. And he's saying because Jesus is ministering in this heavenly tabernacle in the heavenly places that his ministry is 100% superior to the ministry of the priests here on earth. And that kind of makes sense, right? And so now he's going to go and he's going to tell us some more about about why that is true. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 3. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has attained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's telling us here, he's, he's telling us that Jesus' ministry is superior because he ministers in a superior place. And, and, and here's the really the big idea that I want us to take away from this passage today is this, that the old covenant, it's obsolete because it's merely a shadow of the new covenant, which is the substance. That's what he's saying here. He's saying this, this old covenant, it, it's obsolete. It's like that, that black and white TV. It's like that rotary dial phone. So why would you ever want to go back to that when you can have the real substance, when you can have what's new and, and superior in every single way? Now, you'll notice that, that in this definition or in this main idea, the word covenant is there, and the word covenant is going to be a a key word in this entire passage. We've already seen it twice, and he's going to use it five more times when we go through the last part of the chapter here in just a moment. So this idea of a covenant is really important. It's kind of interesting. We ended up at the men's breakfast yesterday talking about the same thing, just coincidence, right? But here's there's a lot of different definitions out there. We had one in the, the Bible study we were using yesterday. It's about three times as long as this, but I found this one this week that I think kind of helps us to get the idea of what a covenant is. 
It says that a covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. I think that's a really good definition of that. And, and a lot of us might be thinking, well, what's the difference between that and a, and a contract? I mean, isn't a contract the same thing as a covenant? And we talked about this yesterday, too, that they're really different things. They're, they're related, I think, but they're different. And here's, there's, there's a lot of technical differences, but here's what it really boils down to. A contract is made between two parties who are looking, each looking out for their own interest. usually involves some kind of a commercial transaction or, or something like that. A covenant, it's this agreement that's, based, that, that's made by two parties in which they're looking out for their mutual benefits, for the good of the, the partnership as a whole. Let me illustrate. In the Bible, marriage is designed to be a covenant, right? When we get married, the, the, God's design is that a husband and wife come together, that they make these vows to each other. They make promises to each other, and the promises are made, what, not for the good of just the husband or just the wife. They're made for the good of the marriage union as a whole. And that's, that, that's what the vows are intended to do. They're tend, intended to be for the benefit of that partnership. But here's what's happened, unfortunately, in our culture today is that so many people now look at marriage and they think it's like a contract. And so what happens when they think it's like a contract? They start looking out for what? My own rights. So have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, I have a right to be happy. I've heard that a lot in marriages. And when that begins to happen, what usually happens is those marriages come apart. That's one of the reasons I think we have such a a high divorce rate in our culture today is because people take something that God intended to be a covenant and they've made it into a contract. See the difference there? Well, in the Bible, there are a number of covenants. And these covenants are all initiated by God and they're initiated by God really for our good. I mean, God is God. He He doesn't need anything from us, right? So he initiates this covenant for our own for our own good. And he makes these promises to us, and we have these, these covenants that are made where oaths are sworn to each other. And in the Old Testament, there are a number of covenants that we find. Some people say there's seven. Some people say there's eight of them. I'm going to share with you this morning, I, I think there's five that are definitely covenants. I think there could be some others that are. But these are the five that are specifically called covenants. If you go to the Scriptures, they're all called a covenant. And these are these, these covenants that God established with mankind. The first one is the Noahic covenant. I can't, that's a hard word to say. I'll just say Noah's covenant, right? That's a lot easier. And it's a covenant that God made with Noah after the flood that he would never again flood the entire earth. And, and he puts the rainbow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. And then there's the other ones that follow. The next three are all ones that are covenants that God makes with his chosen people, Israel, the, the covenant with Abraham, the one with Moses, and the one with David. And then we come along to this new covenant. We're going to talk about this in just a moment because it's the one that the author refers to here, that, that, that God intended all along to be the, the final fulfillment. Really, those other four covenants, they're all, as we're going to see this morning, they're just, they're just a shadow. They're just a copy of the real thing. And the way that the author makes this point is he goes back and he says, look, look what, look what God 
said to Moses all the way back in Exodus when he built the, the tabernacle. And he, and he quotes here Exodus 25, 40, which says this, And see that you make them, it's speaking here of the, the tabernacle and everything that goes with it, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And so, so what we see here is that, I, here's what I think is happening is that Moses is being given a picture or maybe a vision of the, the real tabernacle that's in heaven. And God's saying, I want you to build this earthly tabernacle in a, in a pattern that's just like that. And here in verse 5, we get a, a, a little bit of an idea what that process was like. I really like how the Net Bible translates verse 5 because I think it helps us to really understand what's going on here. It says, the place where they serve, speaking of the earthly priest, is a sketch. I love that word. That's literally what it means. It's a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. So here's what I think is happening. I, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I think there's a lot of support in Scripture for this, that, that Moses somehow sees into heaven. He sees this heavenly tabernacle up there. And God says, go ahead and make a sketch of that. And then, and then God gives him all these detailed instructions about how he's to how he's to build this earthly tabernacle. It's kind of like a way a, an architect would sketch out plans for a building. And so he does that, and he builds that. But this, this earthly tabernacle, it's, it's, only a, it's only a shadow of the hev- heavenly one. Like I shared with the kids this morning, it's, it's not the real thing. He says what's in heaven is what's the real thing is. That's the real tabernacle. And Jesus is ministering there in the heavenly realms in the real tabernacle. He said that is so far superior to this earthly tabernacle, which is now becoming obsolete. And God had long planned for that first tabernacle to become obsolete. And we know that because here in this passage now, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote from the prophet Jeremiah. This is really interesting. This quotation from Jeremiah, this is the longest quotation of an Old Testament passage that we find anywhere in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? He takes and he quotes the entire passage from from Jeremiah chapter 31, from verse 31 all the way through verse 34. And then we're going to see as we read this that that he's pointing ahead to this new covenant, one that's going to be superior. So if you still have your Bibles... Open, go ahead, and we'll finish the chapter now. It says, for he finds fault with them when he says, and now he's going to quote from Jeremiah. This next part is all a quotation from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, of his, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready 
to vanish away. So he quotes here this long passage from Jeremiah. But then what he does is he really focuses on only one word here, the key word really in that entire passage, and it's the word new. And what we find is that there are different kinds of new in the Greek language. There's actually two different main words that are used that can be translated new in Greek. The first word is neos. It means something that is that is recently produced. So if I was going to say I'm going to go out and buy a new car, it would be something that was just came off the, the, the production line there. It would be new in that sense. There's also the word kanos, and it means something that's fresh or, or new in quality. And so, again, kind of if I was going to say I wanted to go out and buy a new car, but it was going to be a completely different kind. Maybe I was going to buy an electric car instead of what I have now. It's something that's completely new or different in quality. And we see this actually in a really interesting place in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was talking about putting new wine in new wineskins? Here's what it says in Luke chapter 5. He says, but new wine, that first word new is neos, must be put into, a lot of your translations will say new wineskins. And and I like the way the ESV translates it fresh to indicate it's a different one. And here's what Jesus was saying there. He's saying, I have a new kind of ministry. It's different in quality. It's something that's completely different than what you've ever seen before. And you can't go ahead and, and the point he's making there, and put it back into the old Jewish religion. He's saying the same thing there that the writer of Hebrews is saying here. And so what? Here the writer of Hebrews, he's continually using the word kanos here. He's saying that this new covenant, it's new in quality. It's completely different than the old one because the old one is obsolete. So you can't just make another one of those. It'd be like us going back and and creating a new black and white TV or creating a rotary telephone again. We'd never do that, right? And he's saying don't do that with your religion either. You have this new covenant that's so much better. And there's three reasons he gives us here why the new covenant is so much superior to the old. The first one is this, that the new one, or in the new covenant, that the law is internalized. Under the old covenant, you had the law, but what did the law deal with? It dealt with all kinds of external things. It dealt with your behavior. It dealt with washings and ceremonial cleansings and and things that you had to do in order to be right with God. And the problem with that old law, though, is that it didn't give you any way to do it. Nobody could ever keep the law perfectly. Nobody. Not even the the most holy of the priests could do that. That's why before they could go make sacrifices for the rest of the nation, what did they have to do? They had to make sacrifices for themselves because they sinned, just like all of us. But what he says, he says under the new covenant, the law is going to be internalized. He says, I'm going to write it not on, on tablets, not on papyrus. He says, I'm going to write it on your hearts and put it in your minds. It's going to be something that's internally. In effect, what he's saying is that under the new covenant, we have the ability to be transformed from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And not only that, he says, once this is in you, I also give you the power to be able to, to, to obey this law. This internalized. Now, it doesn't mean we always do it perfectly. We're going to come to that in a moment. But at least we now have the power to do that. Before you knew Jesus, before you put your faith in him under the new covenant, you had no power to not sin in your life. Now you have power. We don't always take advantage of it. But it, because this law is internalized, we now have the power to do that. 
The second thing he says about this, this new covenant, the reason that it's superior, is that the relationship with God is now personal. You know, largely under the old covenant, the relationship they had with God, it was, it was pretty much corporate, right? They all come together as the nation of Israel, and God makes the covenants not necessarily with individuals. I mean, they're, they're involved, but the covenants are really with Israel as a people. And this whole idea under the old covenant that you could somehow know God personally, there was, that wasn't, nobody even thought of that. Under the old covenant, you first of all, you had to have a priest who would be a go-between between you and God. You couldn't go to him directly. You had to have a priest there. And secondly, if you wanted to really understand the law, you had to have some expert that would teach it to you. But now under the new covenant, he says, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And he says, every one of them, each one of them individually will have the opportunity to know me. That word know there means to know experientially, to have this intimate, personal relationship with God. And we can do that because we now have a permanent priest, Jesus, who gives us the ability to do that. Now, I'm not saying that we still don't need people that can help us to understand the Scriptures. That's an important thing. I mean, I need that. I'm glad I have other people that build into my life. But what it does mean is that each one of us individually has this opportunity to have a personal, individual relationship with God in which we can really get to know Him deeply and intimately. And then the third reason that this new covenant is superior is this, that the the decisive forgiveness of sin. I mean, under the old covenant, we've talked about this before, the, the sacrifices, they could cover sin, and they primarily did that for the nation as a whole. There were some individual sacrifices that were made. But they could never cleanse a person from sin. They could never, they could never get rid of the guilt that was in their mind because those sacrifices were never intended to do that. But under the new covenant, for those who put their faith in Jesus, it says here that, that God will he'll be merciful towards their iniquities and that he'll remember their sins no more. Now, that doesn't mean that God has a bad memory. That's not what that's saying. But what it is saying is this, that when we sin, remember we've talked about this over the last few weeks, that we have this advocate, we have this this priest who is there at the right hand of God who is interceding for us so that every time our sin comes up, Jesus is saying to the Father, I've taken care of that sin. And God says, I'll remember that sin no more because he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So hopefully I see why... I I hope you see why we said this morning that the old covenant is obsolete because it is merely a shadow of the new covenant, which is the substance. There's no reason to go back to the, the, the thing that's obsolete when we have something that is so, so much better. So I was thinking this week, well, well, how do we apply this passage to our life? I mean, what what can we really take away from here? And I, I came up with a whole long list of stuff. There's a lot. But I want to I wanna ask you to focus on just one thing this week, one application, and here's what it is, that I need to keep my mind focused on the things above. I need to keep my mind focused on the things above. If that's where the real tabernacle is, if that's where the great high priest is, 
if that's where the reality of the things of God is, is in heaven, and all the things on earth are merely a shadow or a copy or a sketch of that, then I need to keep my mind focused on the things that are there. The Bible says that we're citizens of heaven, that our citizenship is in heaven. We have citizenship here on earth, too. We have this dual citizenship, but primarily our citizenship is in heaven. And so we need to keep our our minds focused on those things that are above. Now, over the next couple of weeks or next several weeks, Ryan's going to get into to chapters 9 and 10, and, and he's going to talk about some some parts of the tabernacle, some of the things that are a shadow of Jesus Christ, and really how all the different elements that were in the tabernacle point to Jesus. But I want to share just one thing with you this morning, one aspect of that that I hope will be really helpful to you in being able to to kind of keep your focus on on things above. Within the tabernacle, there the tent, which was also called the tent of meeting, there are two parts to the, the literal tabernacle itself, the the tent. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, that was the place where God would manifest His presence. It was the place where the high priest could go into once a year to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And that Holy of Holies, interestingly, it's a perfect cube. It's 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. Perfect cube. Later on, when the, when the temple was built, there was, was also a Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies was also a perfect cube. Now, it was, it was a little bigger. Matter of fact, it was much larger. It was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, which means that, I'm going to give you a math problem here. Just for the, I just decided to do this for the fun of it. How much bigger was the Holy of Holies in the temple than the one in the tabernacle? I know Lauren will know this a lot. Twice as big? Nope. How much? How many times as big? I heard it somewhere. Eight, eight times as big. So, But it's still a perfect cube, right? Perfect cube. Eight times as much volume in there. Believe me, just do the math. It'll work out. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, talks about the time that when Jesus returns to this earth, after that happens, when he comes again for his second coming, there's going to come a time when this new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven to the new earth that God's going to create. And this, this new Jerusalem, guess what shape it is? Perfect cube. 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia or about 1,400 miles in each direction. Now, I, I can't be absolutely sure of this, but I have to really wonder if when Moses saw the pattern for the tabernacle, he wasn't seeing that new Jerusalem that's up there in heaven waiting for God to send down here to earth when Jesus returns. And that that was the pattern for this, this earthly temple was built. And if that's the case, and even if that's not the case, the point is still the same. That the things that we can see and feel and touch here on this earth, they're not the reality. They're only a shadow. 
The reality is in heaven. It, it can't be seen right now, maybe, but it will be seen one day, and that's where we need to keep our focus then because that's what's real. I guess probably about two months ago, as we were going through the book of Colossians, we ran across this passage that I think really expresses the same idea here. It says, if then, and we talked about the fact that the word if means really since, so you could translate, since then you've been raised with Christ, what are you supposed to do? Seek the things that are where? Above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So how do I do that? How do, how do I practically do that? I, I, I could give you a whole list of stuff. We've talked about some of them over the last couple of weeks, right, about, about getting to know God in his word, about changing our mindset as we pray, about spending time with other disciples of Christ. And I'm not going to go over all those again because you guys can go back, look at those, think about those again. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you some questions to think about. And what I want you to do is, is, is to think about these, maybe not right now. I've given them to you in your sermon outline. Spend some time with them this week to think about, about them. But I think if you'll honestly answer these questions, they will help you to get a pretty good evaluation about whether you're thinking about the things above or whether you're thinking about the things here on earth. So here's the first question. Do I know God? Know God. Not just know about God. Do I know God better today than I did a month ago? or a year ago, or five years ago? Do I really know him? Not just know about him, not more information, but do I feel like I really know God better? Second question. Do I genuinely desire to obey God? Or am I one of those people who's out there thinking, how little can I get by with and still squeak into heaven? I've seen a lot of Christians, unfortunately, that have that mindset. Third question. Do I believe that God has forgiven my sins completely? Do I really believe that? Or, is, or am I afraid that there's some sin out there that, that I've committed, something that I've done that God either can't or won't forgive? Fourth question. Here's a really practical one. When I look at my calendar and my bank account, do they reflect a focus on the things above or on the things of this earth? i got to tell you, this is probably the best test of whether you're thinking about the things above or the things on earth. Where do you spend your financial resources, and where do you spend your time? That's probably a pretty good indication. Next question. Do my relationships with others demonstrate the same grace and mercy that God has extended to me? If I understand the grace and mercy that God has extended to me, then then that's how I'm going to treat other people too. And finally, this last one, do I love others enough to tell them about Jesus? Do I love others enough to tell them about Jesus? So I want to encourage you, spend some time with those questions this week. Pray through them. And then respond as God would lead you. Maybe some of you will have some sin to confess. Go ahead and do that. Maybe some of you will need to repent in some areas of your life and make some changes. Do that. Ask God to help you to do that. He'd love to help you to do that. Some of you maybe for the first time need to put your faith in Jesus, but whatever it is, would you ask God to reveal that to you and then be obedient to him in that area? I think that the book of Hebrews is probably one of the the best proofs 
that what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross is true. When Jesus said the same words that we sang a little bit ago this morning, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, to try to come to Jesus through, or to come to God through any other means other than through faith in Jesus, it would be just as ridiculous as buying an obsolete black and white TV or a rotary telephone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is indeed the real thing, that he's eternal, that we can totally and completely put our faith in him, trusting that he is our great high priest who sits at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. My prayer this morning is really simple, God, that you'd speak to each one of our hearts about, about our relationship with you and about whether we're trying to trust in some old obsolete rituals or, or traditions or even our own efforts or whether we're really truly putting our faith in Jesus to come to you, Father. Thank you that you love us enough that you desire for us to draw near to you and that you've provided a way for us to do that. My prayer is that we'd take advantage of that. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Anything we can do.